And we welcome you to the Monday Morning Show on WGTD. I'm Gregory Berg. On March 9th of this year, James Levine died after many years of struggle against a number of different physical maladies, the most serious of which was Parkinson's disease. Levine was 77 years old. For 40 years, from 1976 until 2016, Levine was music director of the Metropolitan Opera. It is safe to say that no single figure in the history of the Met has had a more profound impact on the company than James Levine. He also held leading positions with the Ravinia Festival, the Boston Symphony, and the Munich Philharmonic. Sadly, the legacy of James Levine is badly tainted by the specter of sexual misconduct, numerous allegations of which eventually led the Met to terminate its relationship with Levine. We are turning to the Morning Show archives today for a memorable conversation which I recorded back in 2001 with Joanna Fiedler, daughter of Arthur Fiedler, longtime conductor of the Boston Pops. Joanna Fiedler, for a number of years, served as chief press liaison for the Metropolitan Opera. In 2001, she returned to the company, if you will, to write a book about its ongoing operations, a book titled Molto Agitato, The Mayhem Behind the Music. In the book, she talks at some length about the legacy of James Levine, which is why I thought it would be interesting to replay this interview. I should mention that we do briefly touch on the matter of uh, some of the rumors that were swirling around James Levine even then concerning his personal conduct. In this interview, Fiedler firmly denies those rumors having any validity whatsoever. It's important to remember that this conversation took place uh, in 2002, many years before more substantive information came to light about Mr. Levine. Joanna Fiedler, by the way, passed away back in 2011. Here is our conversation about her book, Molto Agitato. Ironically, one of my jobs at the Met was to, dis- when I worked there, I was the general press representative for 15 years. And one of my jobs was to actively discourage people from writing books. <laughs> so I was a little nervous when I presented the idea to everybody at the Met, but they could not have been more cooperative. Um, from James Levine to Joe Volpe to the chairman of the board, everybody was very helpful. Now explain one thing to me. Uh, I mean, the, the excerpt in Vanity Fair is definitely focused on James Levine himself. Uh, but am I perhaps mischaracterizing the book and saying that it is about him? Is it more about the opera company as a whole? Yes, it is. It's, I mean, it begins with, with James Levine. It ends with James Levine. And he's obviously the primary figure for the last 30 years. But it's um, really a history of power struggles in the company and also history of the balance of power between the artistic elements, the financial elements, and the social elements, all of which are, have to be kept in a kind of tricky sort of balancing act. Hmm. I want to talk for just a moment before I forget about your, your tenure as general press representative for the Met, and you say that it was your job to discourage people from writing books about the Met. I, I have to have you explain that a bit further. That sounds very intriguing. Well, the Met is, has a reputation of being sort of like the Kremlin or the Vatican. They're, it's you know this big institution that's not terribly interested in having outsiders come in and basically um, you know pry through what's going on there. One of the problems with almost everybody who wants to write a book about the Met is they start off saying, "Of course, I'll have to go to all the rehearsals." Well, that's very that's that's almost impossible because rehearsals, especially the early ones, are 
when the director and the singers and the conductor develop a relationship with each other. And to have an outsider there watching and even taking notes would be very destructive to the whole process. So if someone was interested in writing a book that did not involve them being backstage and going to rehearsals and that kind of thing, I think we would have been willing to consider it. But somehow that every time we said no rehearsals, people would say, oh, well, I guess then I can't write the book. <laughs> I mean, I had the general feeling a lot of people just wanted to be backstage at the Met. Mm, just hanging around yeah. with, with the stars. What, what were the years that you were at the Met? Um, 1975 to 1990. Ah, I asked because uh, just before you started then, Harvey Phillips would have written his marvelous book called The Carmen Chronicle, where he did just exactly what you described, uh, hung out at all kinds of rehearsals and really took down some fascinating things during the pr preparation for the new production of Carmen in 1972. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and he caught some really turbulent moments between uh, Marilyn Horne and Leonard Bernstein and a couple of explosions. And, and uh, I suppose that was a, a, a clear example of, of how uh, risky it is That's to, right. to allow a writer to be uh, privy to what sometimes intimate and very frank exchanges. Well, know. in fact, there's a chapter in my book about the new production, also ironically, of Carmen that Franco Zeffirelli did. Um, I think it was three or four years ago now, which for the first time the Met decided to allow a journalist to be there for all the rehearsals and um, causing, in the end, huge problems because... Uh, Mr. Zeffirelli did not get along very well with Valtraud Meyer, who was the Carmen. She was singing Carmen for the first time in her professional career. She was very nervous about it. And the two of them really locked horns. And the journalist who was there wrote all about it. And it ended up being a huge scandal. Who is that journalist writing for? Newsday. Ah. So what do you think made the difference in the Met uh, welcoming you with open arms as you sort of characterize it? Why did they say yes? Why did they agree to this? Well, I think they knew that, um, first of all, I love the institution, and I knew enough so that I could write the book, really, without their cooperation to some extent. I mean, I would never have been able to give such a rounded portrait of James Levine, if, I mean, although I've known him for many years, if I hadn't had a chance to sit with him for hours on end just talking. So they probably felt like they were doing themselves a service by allowing you access. Otherwise, you would have been writing a book without access and maybe not painting an entirely complete portrait. Is that what well, I hope I would have anyway, but I think they, they felt they could trust me, I think. The fact that maybe you were a part of the Met uh, yeah. for a time. And I didn't have any agenda about you know creating scandal, which I've been criticized for in some of the reviews, actually. Of this particular book? Yeah. Interesting. Uh, so uh, you didn't have an agenda, but you obviously had some sort of uh, plan, uh, schedule, I mean, to go about researching this book. Uh, what did you do? I mean, did you end up hanging around backstage? No, I didn't, actually. Um, you know, the fact is I spent 15 years hanging around backstage, mm -hmm. so I didn't really need to. I knew, I know what goes on there. What I needed to get was a historical and factual background for the book, so I spent almost two years researching in the archives going through the files from the very beginning in 1883 wow. to the present. You were, uh, then you were uh, in, into the domain of, I believe it's Mr. Tuggle, Robert Tuggle? Oh, yes, yes. He, he was wonderful to me. Wow. So, so what kinds of things were you looking through then in the archives? Oh, I went through um, some fascinating correspondence, early correspondence between the early board members, um, which I don't think anybody has ever gone through before. I also uh, was able to read 
some correspondence between Rudolf Bing and the then president of the board, Anthony Bliss, who would end up in the end um, becoming general manager of the Met. But when he was president of the board and Bing was the general manager, they had a very, very difficult relationship. And it's very interesting to show how the general manager and the board president often have different different things that are important to them mm. and how they work out what both of them want. I mean, Bing, for example, was extremely, what's the word, um, suspicious of the Met's involvement in Lincoln Center. Oh, that complex that involves uh, Avery Fisher Hall and the New York City Opera? Is that right. I mean, he particularly did not want the New York City Opera um, coming into the complex because he thought one opera company was enough, mm. especially when it was he considered the best in the country. So um, he was very, ironically enough, now Joseph Volpe is having some problems with Lincoln Center because the Met as the largest constituent and in many ways most powerful constituent can actually, in some cases, influence the way the other constituents will function. Interesting. So you're reading memos and letters and so on in which, for instance, Rudolph Bing is revealing some of these uh, antagonistic feelings. Right. Wow. I mean, that's one of the things that I worry about is that after, you know, after, I guess, probably until about 10 years ago, almost everything is in writing. Now everything is done in email, and I don't know what future historians are going to do, frankly. Uh, if, if you will even have access to these kind of uh, exchanges and communications. Well, know. they may not even exist. They may just be, you know, emails that were then erased. Wow. So, so your, your book really... Uh, spans the entire history of the Met, uh, yes. going back to 1883. Do you give uh, particular focus to more recent years? Yes, it's definitely the, the concentration on between 1970 and the present. Right. But uh, we realized, uh, my editor and I realized, that after I wrote that section, or started to write that section, that I had to keep going back further and further and further to explain the background of some of the things that were happening. So the first hundred pages are from 1883 to about 1970. Okay. The book is entitled Molto Agitato. By the way, we're talking today on the morning show, those of you just joining us, with Joanna Fiedler, the author of Molto Agitato, the mayhem behind the music at the Metropolitan Opera. And an excerpt from this book uh, is in the current issue of Vanity Fair uh, magazine. Ms. Fiedler, I should mention that I was uh, paging through this issue of Vanity Fair. It's called The Music Issue, and kind of grumbling to myself that classical music never shows up in these things in these you know retrospectives of music and and classical music just gets left off altogether so often and then all of a sudden i'm paging through this marvelous article uh, the excerpt from your book so i applaud vanity fair for including something like this um you mentioned when we first talked on the phone that in fact this article nearly didn't appear in this issue uh, because of recent events explain that please well as a matter of fact i was just in the process of editing it um at the beginning of september and um the morning i was supposed to, i was i have a house in the country and the morning i was supposed to come back to new york to go to vanity fair offices and edit the piece was morning of september 11th i never got back to the city needless to say because all the bridges and the tunnels were closed down and at that point, Vanity Fair began to consider giving this whole, just sort of tossing out everything they'd done for this issue and doing an issue dedicated just to what happened at the World Trade Center. I mean, in the end, I think they decided they couldn't really do the kind of job they wanted to do in such a short period of time. Because believe it or not, the November issue closes at the beginning of September. 
That's the magazine business. Isn't That's it? right. So they ended up doing a short little photo supplement that is beautifully done, by the way. But then in the meantime, the music issue, as originally conceived, is pretty much intact then, including your... I guess I think they're going to deal with the World Trade Center tragedy on a more substantial basis in the coming months. Right. Well, anyway, back to your book called Molto Agitato. Now, that... Uh, uh, very much agitated is what that means, of right. course, in Italian. It's a musical term for uh, the sake of our listeners who don't don't know it. Now, did you go into this book uh, from your experience at the Met already knowing that there was much agitation behind the scenes, or did you tr- try to walk into this uh, into this project with a clean slate and you found much agitation and wrote about it? Do you understand what I mean? I mean, did you already know? Well, I, I had this 15 years there. <laughs> I think I knew there was a lot of, of agitation, but I, what I, was interesting about writing this book was putting it in a historical context to see that the same issues come up over and over and over again, but with different faces. What were the surprises, if any, as you, as you researched, this, uh, researched this book? Or, 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 or weren't there very many surprises, just interesting details that enriched the picture? Well, I think I was very surprised um, certainly in the correspondence of the early board members by the blatant anti-Semitism that existed at that time. Um, because at one time, Gustav Mahler, who had c- conducted at the Met for two years, was being considered to be the first music director. And um, basically, one board member actually wrote and said uh, in a letter that he didn't think that that was appropriate. Um, and Otto Kahn, who was an early philanthropist who basically shaped the modern Met, uh, who is also Jewish, was not even allowed to own a box in the opera house. Wow. So it's that surprised me, that it was so out in the open. Um, you knew that those feelings existed, but not that people would be so frank about them. Right. Huh, that would be disconcerting to read some of that, I'm sure. Yeah. I also was surprised to find out that in the 70s, um, around the time that I first came to the Met, what terrible financial trouble the company was in. I mean, obviously, I knew when I was working there that people were worried about money, but it was really on the brink of complete bankruptcy and disaster. You mentioned in your article that uh, there was the, the very real possibility that in the fairly near future, uh, they were not going to be able to meet their payroll, which is always sort of the the blackest of the black when somebody's in financial trouble. Well, they were seriously considering shutting down the company for two years to try to get their finances back in shape. But Anthony Bliss, who was this very sort, he was a real visionary who had been board president and was made general manager at the darkest possible moment. He just said, if we shut it down, it will never reopen. Hmm. Um, You know, I see all these orchestras now teetering on the edge of bankruptcy, and I think... You know, try to keep playing, because otherwise it's very hard to start up again once you stop. You think the, the, the Met story should be uh, an inspiration of sorts? Yeah. Let's, let's backtrack for just a little bit. Uh, I don't think we have any listeners who uh, remember very much about the 1880s, but we do have <laughs> listeners that, uh, that may remember the days of Sir Rudolph Bing, who was, I believe, general manager of the Met from 1950 to 1972. That's right. Uh, tell us... Uh, Tell us what you think is, is most interesting and intriguing about that, uh, that long tenure of Sir Rudolph Bing. Well, he was an extraordinary man. I mean, it's very unusual for the general manager to be the most charismatic personality in an opera house, and he definitely was. And in some ways, it's interesting to see Joseph Volpe now, who has some of the same elements in a very different kind of way, who's really become a living figure to especially to new yorkers 
because he has no compunction about plunging into the middle of controversy. He's a great interview because he says exactly what he means. There's no beating around the bush with Mr. Volpe. Mm. Um, and likewise with Sir Rudolph Bing. That's right. I mean, he would say pretty much anything that he thought, and the public responds very positively to people who speak honestly. Mm. I think it's something that uh, some of our other public figures could learn from. <laughs> I I've, I've remember... Well, he. He wrote two books, I believe. Uh, I mean, that is Sir Rudolph Bing, yes, two did. that I've read. And, and um, when he includes excerpts from memos and maybe letters that he's fired off to uh, to rebellious singers, I mean, bringing them back in line. I mean, you just read these strong, incredibly beautifully crafted uh, memos and letters, and just think, boy, this this man had an amazing way with words and a real strength of conviction and uh it's it's hard to imagine anybody uh besting him in a in a head Oh, I don't think they could. I mean, uh, his his command of of English which was not his first language was extraordinary. I mean, he loved puns. He was he would he loved plays on words and that kind of thing. He was I mean, I've only met him a couple of times because obviously I came after he had left. But I was just stunned by his wit and his quickness. And the ironic, terrible thing that happened, of course, is that he became a victim of Alzheimer's disease right. and lost this incredible steely mind. Yeah. The time that he was general manager at the Met, in, in many respects, was a, a magnificent era for the Opera House. So tell us something of, of his accomplishments there. Well, certainly, the, the, uh, particularly the early years. I mean, toward the end, he was beginning to be affected by the financial problems, which were begin- they didn't come to a head until after he had left, but the foundation was there. But he certainly was one. Of, he was the first person to understand the importance of, of um, how shall I say this, of, of the stage director, of the scenery, of the costumes. And he tried to present productions that were not the operatic cliches, you know, sort of Wagner performances with people wearing helmets with little horns on them and things like that. He he tried to basically to make the Met into a theater, which it had not been before. So more of a theatrical experience, right. careful, uh, dramatic presentation, directors like Margaret Webster coming in and... Uh, and uh, bringing their own new perspective to matters. Yes. Rudolph Bing, of course, also presided over the move from the old Met to the new, and I suppose that in itself was an extraordinary accomplishment. Well, it was. What he didn't realize, and because that was the, that was the basis of the financial problems that were to come, was that nobody, they really underestimated how much it was going to cost to run a new theater. Um, the operating costs of the new Met were much higher than the old Met. And um, within a year, they were in horrible trouble financially. They had to raise ticket prices, which they'd never done before. Um, they just had... Raise ticket prices in the middle of the season, I mean. R- not right. Obviously, they've raised ticket prices, but never in the middle of the season because they just there was just no way to go on without t- taking these very drastic measures. Uh, was it they were just had to be many more personnel there or, or technical matters to take care of it in, in, in the new Met? I think just the upkeep of the building was oh. astronomical. It's a huge building. It's the size of a 45-story skyscraper lying on its side. Mm. And, you know, it can take 10 minutes to walk from one part of the building to another. Uh, it's huge, and it has to be. Um, it was, of course, one of those buildings built in the period when the windows won't open. So the air conditioning and the heating is unbelievably expensive wow. because there's no way to naturally ventilate the air. Hmm. 
I remember also reading that uh, when the new Met opened in 1966, uh, apparently Sir Rudolph Bing uh, uh, had ideas that were a bit too grandiose, and and I forget how many new productions they opened. I mean, brand well, new. Well, he sets. planned. To, he planned. To, he, apparently, he found out that when the Vienna State Opera reopened after the war, they had done so. So and so many. I can't remember the exact. It's like figures. seven or something. And he and he decided the Met had to be better than that. And he said very honestly himself. I think it's in his book, A Night at the Opera, that um, he it he took the blame. He said I overplanned the season. And then of course there was a strike by the orchestra, or almost a strike by the orchestra. They settled something like at seven o'clock on opening night, which created havoc with the schedule for the rest of the. Mm. of the season. Also, there were all kinds of problems with the stage machinery, which was much more sophisticated than there had been at the old Met. For example, the production that opened the uh, the new house was, uh, again, a Zeffirelli production called Antony and Cleopatra. And Zeffirelli, seeing this huge stage, which revolved and it has side stages which move in and out, making scene changes very easy, overloaded the, the scenery and the costumes and the extra number of extras to the point where the um, revolving stage just broke down mm-hmm. and was broken down for the rest of the season. Wow. And <laughs> the re- I suppose in some ways that's a that's a sad metaphor for at least some of what occurred. On the other hand, of course, it's a glorious uh, era for the Met in terms of the caliber of singers that were attracted there and that sort of thing. <laughs> um, those are great golden days, I'm sure, in the, in the minds of many... Uh, many opera fans. Yes, but I always, I'm always amused when I hear people talk about, when I was first came to the Met, people were talking about the 50s and the early 60s. Now, in 2001, I hear people talk about the 70s and 80s as the great years. So, I mean, <laughs> everybody always remembers them selectively, shall we say. Yes, right. And there are great performances in all eras. Of course. One of the uh, really dark moments in the history of the Met, of course, occurs uh, in, in 1972 when uh, the successor to Rudolf Bing is very tragically killed. I believe, was it an airplane? Cr- no, a car crash? Car accident. He was on vacation in Sardinia with his family. Tell us his name. Goran Gentila. And uh, give us some sense of, of what that meant to the Met to lose this promising uh, new leader before he'd had a chance to really assume any of his responsibilities in a meaningful way. Well, he had done some planning. I mean, the most interesting thing about Gentila was that he was the complete opposite of Rudolf Bing. Rudolf Bing was this very, in some ways, self-styled, aristocratic um, dictator, very sort of forbidding. And Gentila was a warm, friendly, much younger man who immediately became very popular with everyone in the company because he was so genial and outgoing. Um, and he had begun, he of course could not plan the first season because of the way the opera world is structured, where singers have to be engaged literally years in advance, even back then. He couldn't do very much with the first season because Bing had already basically constructed it. He did change a few things. For example, the Carmen that you were talking about was originally supposed to be a production of Tannhäuser, Bing had planned opening night as Tannhäuser, and now Tannhäuser at that time was one of the, wor- the Met's most bedraggled productions. Hmm. And Gentila said, I'm just not going to do that. I want to open my tenure with a new production that shows the theatrical values that I have. Hmm. And he had been a theater director. He was the head of the Royal Opera in Stockholm. So he planned this Carmen, but, and he was going to direct it himself. And when he died, I mean, the Met was just thrown into complete chaos. 
The uh, the man who, of course, had to step into the breach was Skylar Chapin, active in the uh, arts community, and I suppose he did his best, but uh, he ends up being at the helm during these really dark financial days and eventually was essentially forced to step down. Do you think he was unfairly treated at the Met? Um, I just think he was the wrong person in the wrong place. I mean, Skylar Chapin is a man with impeccable manners. He's very courteous. He's very gracious. He simply didn't have the temperament to make the kind of tough decisions that you have to make with an opera house that's floundering the way it was. And when Anthony Bliss, who had been forced out himself by Rudolph being, I guess, in 1967-68, the board brought him back, and he was able to make the tough decisions, you know, to say, this has to stop, this has to go. We have to basically start all over, and Anthony Bliss rebuilt the mat practically from scratch. Mm. And, you know, Skylar Chapin probably would have been a wonderful general manager at another time, but this was not his time. Not, uh, we, he was, uh, as you say, wrong place, wrong time. Yeah. Yeah, unfortunate. Uh, when James Levine comes to the Met, that's, uh, boy, 1971 or 72, something like that? Seven, I think it was 71. Uh, s- still under the era of Sir Rudolph Bing. That's kind of intriguing to me. It says something about how long he's been there, that, that James Levine remembers Rudolph Bing as general manager, and here he is all these many years later uh, still at the Met, and, and of course in a, in a figure of, of extraordinary importance. One of the things I, I, I think we should begin with, uh, James Levine's artistic legacy uh, at the Metropolitan, uh, what he has accomplished there musically with the orchestra. Well, he played the, or- the Met Orchestra, which was in many ways not a joke, but certainly not a respected ensemble. He's turned it into one of the great American orchestras. And that's because his whole philosophy is staying in one place, working with the orchestra on a regular basis, having a flexible rehearsal schedule, meaning that you know they can devote more rehearsal to things that need it more and less to things that the orchestra knew very well. He, um, you know, he, he was actually, he did not pick the players. The players picked themselves in this orchestra, but he was able to bring out the best in the players that he had. And by now, the orchestra is probably, I would say, 99% differently from when he first, different from when he first came. Hmm. And um, because there are so there are so many people being turned out by the music schools in this country of such incredible technical polish and excellence. Um, basically, the Met Orchestra is the pick of the cream of the crop. It is the highest paid orchestra in the country. Really? It also works the hardest. <laughs> you quote in your Vanity Fair article, uh, in, in your book, of course, um, a member of the orchestra saying, uh, Levine trains an orchestra better than anyone. He has the patience for measure-by-measure rehearsal when other conductors are more involved in their relationship to the cosmos. I know, I love that quote. I do, too. <laughs> he will rehearse the accompaniment to the Tchaikovsky Violin Concerto for six hours, a single chord for hours. Anyone else would die of boredom. <laughs> That's a great contrast to uh, other, other conductors, of course. Yes. Uh, you do mention uh, in this excerpt in your book about uh, one of the criticisms leveled at James Levine over the years is the fact that he is there, but many of the other preeminent conductors uh, in the world have not been there. And it sounds like that's a charge that that he has resented to some extent. Oh, he gets very upset if you bring that subject up. because And, and I found when I interviewed the people who had been the artistic administrators during his tenure at the Met, they have asked everybody, or almost everybody, um, 
And basically the problem is, to, and the thing is that most of the major conductors, of course, assume they're going to get a new production because that's the most prestigious way to come into the Met. The trouble is doing a new production at the Met means at least two months out of your schedule devoted entirely to the Met. And most of these people are so busy they can't do that. Hmm. I mean, Seiji Ozawa did come. Bernard Heitink did come. Klaus Tenstedt did come. Um, they have had the conductors that they could get. They've asked everybody, and not very many people can come. Now, when you talk to people, uh, members of the orchestra, and I assume you would talk to a few singers, too, mm -hmm. um, what are the personal feelings towards James Levine? I mean, uh, is, it a, is it an uninterrupted chorus of hurrahs? Or um, is, is there, are, there, are there mixed feelings to any significant degree from those that work with him on a regular basis? No, certainly not among the singers. Absolutely not. They absolutely... He's, he's, he's a real singer's conductor. He understands, he breathes with them, and he teaches the orchestra to listen to the singers hmm. and to try to copy what they're doing. And each of the orchestra members I know has a certain singer that they really admire and who they will listen to to see what the kind of musicianship that Levine is after. And I must say, I've been around orchestras for my whole life, and I've never seen an orchestra, speaking of the actual musicians, who after 30 years still admire their conductor as much as the musicians in the Met Orchestra do. That's saying a lot, I suppose. Because Not all of them maybe love him, but most of them really do. Hmm. He's an incredible musician and an incredible colleague. Hmm. We're speaking with Joanna Fiedler, the author of a, of a new book about the Metropolitan Opera, and it focuses in large extent upon uh, the great, James Levine, who has uh, been at the Metropolitan since 1971. The book is called Molto Agitato, The Mayhem Behind the Music uh, at the Metropolitan Opera. Um, Ms. Fiedler, in the, the article in Vanity Fair, you do, uh, you do mention the fact that James Levine, for, <laughs> for all of his fame, for the fact that he has been at the pinnacle of his craft for all these years, is a very private person and leads, uh, from all accounts, a, a rather interesting personal life, which we'll touch on for at least a, a little bit here. I want to talk first about the privacy thing and the fact that James Levine has really uh, not been very accessible uh, for, for interviewers very much over the years. Uh, did, he, did you meet with any resistance in being able to spend time with him and really interview him for this book? Uh, were there topics off-limits, off that kind of thing? No, not at all. I mean, first of all, we've known each other for a long time, and um, I think, as I said, he trusted me. I mean, I think he was you know, a little nervous, as anybody would be, because, um, first of all, I obviously wasn't going to show him the whole manuscript, but I think he knew that I deeply respect him as a musician and as a person. And I think that that made it, made it possible for me to spend time with him in a way that other people haven't been able to. Now, those times together, I mean, were they sit-down interviews? You have a notebook in your hand? I mean, or were they more just sort of casual it time varied. together? Sometimes it was just casual conversations in which some, some of the most interesting things came out. Other times, I actually do interviews on the computer because I, I, it's faster for me, and I know... I have noticed that taking out a tape recorder is the best way to get someone to immediately put up their guard. Hmm. But if you're there with it, I have a little computer, a knee top, it's called, and I just and after a while I kind of forget about it. But there were several times when when Mr. Levine would say to me, "Oh, just put away the computer. Let's just talk." Hmm. Definitely more relaxed under those situations. Um, 
let's talk for a bit about his, his kind of interesting personal situation. And he really, in, in some ways, has kind of drawn a veil over this whole whole uh, uh, facet of, of, of his life. And, uh, and then has been the subject of some uh, rumors over the years, which, uh, uh, from the sounds of it, have been really quite painful. First of all, w- was it with any trepidation or hesitation that you delved into some of these matters? Or did you feel like you were, in some way, doing him a, a service by addressing them? Well, I hope I hope I did do him a service. For example, there was just a review of my book in the New Yorker, in which basically the um, writer said that I had finally put these rumors to rest, hmm. because, as he said, they've assumed a kind of force of an urban legend. And we should say what these rumors are, I think, uh, for the sake of those that have no idea what we're talking about. Well, the rumors concern his sexual preferences, basically, um, and they are vicious and completely unfounded, completely. And I did, I took the advice of of people that I knew at the New York Times and New York Magazine, people who were real investigative reporters about how to go about this, because they all said you just can't, you know, just because you believe they're not true, you have to research it very thoroughly, and I did, and there was no truth to them. And also, I've known him for years. I know they're not true. Anybody who knows him knows they're not true. But everyone would say to me, oh, you're writing a book about the matter. Are you going to tell the truth about Levine? Well, mm. yes, I did tell the truth. It may not be the truth they want to hear. You, were, you, you mentioned in the article the fact that, uh, I mean, one of, the, one of the charges, of course, is that, is that uh, James Levine had perhaps uh, uh, assaulted, uh, I mean, it's even been assaulted young children and so on, and the, and the rumor had been that the Metropolitan was paying off certain families to the tune of millions and millions of dollars, and you make a, a very strong point that, that something like that, of, of those sort of dimensions, could not possibly be hidden for no. all these years. And I talked to board members who don't like Levine, who wish he weren't the artistic director, who feels he has too much power, and these are people who resigned from the board because they hated him so much. And um, they, they were people who I knew would tell me the truth, and they said absolutely not one shred of truth to those rumors. Hmm. It's interesting uh, how those start, and I, I know you, you must have spoken with him fairly directly because you quote Mr. Levine as saying that... Uh, that he can't imagine uh, what the source of these rumors uh, uh, might might be and, and what the motivation might possibly be. Well, he's a very powerful man, and powerful men make enemies. Um, you know, there are theories at the Met about who started the rumors. I th- believe it was done very deliberately. Um, there, are, there are two or three leading candidates, shall we say, but I don't really know who did it. I have no way of proving who did it. But it was de- something that was deliberately done to hurt him. Hmm. And it was easier for me to talk about it with him, I think, than many people, because I said to him, you know, my father was in the, had a very public life, and I know how much it hurt when I read things about him that intruded on our privacy or were in some way critical, and I think that he felt that we had a certain amount of shared experience in this area. Because of that. Yeah. One of the things you touch on in your article and book, which I, I find particularly fascinating, is the whole issue of, of a, a relationship uh, between artistic director and singer. And, uh, and, you, and you talk there about how, for as much as, by and large, all singers love James Levine, uh, there have been very turbulent moments where, uh, where uh, Maestro Levine's relationship with a given singer has uh, gone from hot to cold or where certain singers are in, uh, 
in favor's light for a while, and then something happens, and they and they just aren't anymore, or there just aren't enough plums to go around, and you just can't quite keep everybody happy. Um, talk a little bit about that whole facet of of his work at the Met and the the, the difficult challenge of keeping all of these uh, singers happy. Well, when I said that all the singers who have worked with him love him, I mean the singers who worked with him on a regular basis. There are many singers who don't love him because. They at one time thought they had more of a future at the Met that they than they turned out to have. Um, the the thing is that the availability of certain voices fluctuates widely. I'm, for example, ten years ago, no one believed that another Tristan would ever came ever come along, and then all of a sudden one did. And um, twenty years ago, there were no dramatic sopranos. So one particular dramatic soprano, Renata Scotto, who's probably not a dramatic soprano physically um, rose to prominence because there was nobody else. And when young singers started coming along who could sing that same repertory more easily and more naturally, um, she, of course, her star started to, to basically to descend. And she was very resentful for a while. I mean, one of the things that was in my book about Renata Scotto that um, got taken out in the various editing processes was that she's gone on to an extremely successful career as a stage director and as a mentor of young singers. So sure, her career did not come to an end. It, it developed into something else. Yes, although on the other hand, I mean, it really sort of petered out at the Met. I mean, there was no grand farewell for her there. And uh, you, you touch on the fact that uh, she maybe was not treated as gently or, or as lovingly uh, as she might have been in, in her last uh, couple of seasons. Well, I, I don't know about... Uh, she, she was... a she at the time because she was she she was a very intelligent woman she knew what was happening to her voice and because she was threatened she could be a little difficult to deal with um so i don't really know how much of it was her saying i don't want a big a big farewell performance because perhaps she felt that it wasn't a farewell performance mm. as it turned out it was right i'm reminded of uh reading the the autobiography of cheryl milnes who, uh, in the penultimate chapter of that book, expresses all kinds of frustration and utter bewilderment that his career at the Met, uh, more so than uh, Miss Scotto's, I mean, just sort of uh, dwindled to nothing and then just kind of died there. Uh, and, and he professes to, to not have any idea why that w- would have happened. Are we talking about singers who maybe are not <laughs> quite connected with reality and, and aren't willing to face up to the fact that they're their skills and resources have dwindled to the point where they don't belong in the Met stage anymore? Or, or is Maestro Levine kind of hot and cold in the way that he deals with singers sometimes? Well, I think in, in Scotto's case, for example, she knew what was happening. As I said, she's extremely intelligent. Um, Cheryl Milnes was perhaps a little more in denial about what was happening to his voice. I mean, he was in his 60s when his career started to, well, his career may have started to peter out a little bit earlier. And the fact is, that being a singer is like being an athlete. Um, age does have an effect on it. And these young singers, and it happened to be a period when there were lots of baritones coming along. And, um, you know, and, and while Cheryl was at the height of his powers, he sang everything with, with Levine, absolutely everything. He and Domingo and Scotto were known as the Gang of Three because mm. they did everything. But it, the time passes. It's very sad. It's very hard to accept. I'm just glad I'm a writer, which age does not really affect as much. <laughs> yeah, the vocal <laughs> like being cord. a conductor. Right. 
Exactly. Did you did you speak with many singers about uh, James Levine? Yes, I did. Um, give us some sense of who you talked to and the kinds of things you heard. And did you end up speaking with any of the singers who have had more of a of a difficult or kind of sad relationship, uh, as we've been talking about? Yes, I did, but in, in every case, I promised I wouldn't use their names. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there was no reluctance to talk about James Levine? There were some people who wouldn't talk to me, absolutely, because, he, as I said, he's a very powerful man in the music world, and people are afraid, and singers are very insecure, as anybody is who depends on these two little vocal cords for their entire life. And uh, and also depend on the good graces of someone like James Levine. Yeah. In terms of that, that can make, I suppose, a, an enormous difference in terms of where their career might uh, or might not go. You do say that uh, in some respects the Metropolitan Opera at the moment has never been stronger in terms of the stable of singers there and, 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 in, and in many other artistic ways. Am I characterizing that correctly? Yeah, I believe that. I mean, there was a music critic, um, Peter Davis at New York Magazine, who has been very critical of Levine and of the Met for years. And when he heard I was writing my book, he said to me, well, it's a success story. And if somebody who is that critical of the institution can say that, I think the Met is considered at the moment to be a success. I mean, artistically, its standards are very high. Um, when Levine first came, there were quite frequently performances where the singers had never met each other, where the conductor had never met the singers. Now everything is rehearsed very thoroughly. I mean, this is a very expensive solution to that problem, but Levine's artistic integrity is at the point where he couldn't accept anything less. You're listening to the Monday Morning Show on WGTD. I'm Gregory Berg. Today's interview from the Morning Show Archives dates all the way back to 2001. It's with Joanna Fiedler, author of a book about the behind-the-scenes operations of the Met. It's called Molto Agitato, The Mayhem Behind the Music. It's important to remember that Joanna Fiedler's comments about James Levine were made many years before more substantive information about Mr. Levine's personal conduct came to light. The book is about a number of fascinating figures from the Met's history, including Joseph Volpe, a former general director of the Met, with an exceptionally interesting story. Well, it's a, it's a fascinating story. I mean, he when I first came to the Met, he was a carpenter or a stagehand. Um, he was actually a carpenter um, at the Met, and by the time I left, it was quite clear that he was on his way to becoming general manager. So in 15 years, he went from... The very bottom, well, actually, I don't think of the stage crew. I have enormous admiration for the stage crew. I don't think of them as the bottom of the heap at all. But he worked his way up in a way through the ranks of the hierarchy and the bureaucracy at the Met, which is pretty intense um, in a way that nobody else has ever been able to do. And he's a most unlikely general manager. <laughs> in, in what respect? He's, a, he's a, you know, he's, he has, it's hard to explain exactly, he has a, his, presentation of himself is exactly who he is, somebody who comes from a working-class background, who um, has never really been interested in assuming all of the, fun, the finesses of, of people who are perhaps born to, to be on the Met board. And as a result, as I said, because he's so honest about himself, people respect him for that. There was an element on the board that was not happy about him becoming general manager, and one of them even made the remark, he doesn't even know what fork to use. (laughs) 
But the fact is that very powerful people on the board knew what ability he had. And in the 10 or 11 years he's had the job, I mean, the Met is really stabilized in every possible way. Now, of course, nothing in New York is stable at the moment, and the World Trade Center um, disaster has had profound effect on the Met, along with everything else in this city. Tell us a little more about that. Uh, well, what, what are some of those tangible effects? Well, the ticket sales have fallen off in a very serious way. I mean, I w- I've been to several performances here. They're all full, but I know the difference between full and sold out. Mm. And even though for most organizations that would not be... And the Met, the Met is a very expensive place to run. The um, budget is over $200 million a year. Wow. And um, when you start losing ticket sales... I mean, there was a performance of Idomeneo the other night with Domingo. Usually that would be sold out. It was only 70% full. Oh, dear. That does show what, how things have changed. And I know the Met lost uh, uh, at least a couple of its uh, headliners, uh, I think maybe for opening night or for, for a couple of the opening productions, uh, opera singers that were not willing to fly. Mostly they have been, but um, there were two prominent examples. Roberto Alagna and his wife decided they aren't going to fly, so they did not come for the opening of the season. Right. Uh, uh, yeah, and Joe, as Joe Volpe said, he respects that decision. It's it's a difficult uh, time, and I suppose everyone has to make the decision that's that's best for them. You touch in your article on uh, probably the single most uh, electric moment in in Joseph Volpe's tenure, and that is uh, the firing of soprano <laughs> Kathleen Battle. That is really quite a story in and of itself. It says a lot about him, I think. Well, I think that he had just decided that the time had come that you know there were certain singers who were behaving very badly and who felt. I mean, I think with Kathleen Battle, everyone feels that someone should have stepped in earlier. Um, but she was one of Levine's favorites. And the fact is that she created enormous dissension in the Opera House whenever she was there, and I think Volpe decided it was bad for the company as a whole. Now, you could perceive that as the first kind of salvo in a power struggle between Levine and Volpe, and the fact is that Levine did not want her to be fired, and Volpe decided he would go ahead anyway. Mm. Um, You know, which basically created the image of a strong general manager who was completely in control. Wow. I was going to ask about the relationship between Mr. Volpe and Mr. Levine. Is it an uneasy truce between the two of them? I mean, you're talking about two people each with enormous power and influence. Uh, an ego. At, yeah, <laughs> at the at the top of an organization like the Met, that can't be easy. It isn't. It isn't easy at all. But um, Levine, when he talked to me about my book, he said one of the things that he liked the best was the way I talked about how the respect they'd always had for each other had now deepened into an affectionate respect. Hmm. I mean, I think there are moments when both of them get very exasperated with the other. But basically... One of the reasons, as we all know now, James Levine is going to the Boston Symphony as its new music director. While continuing to um, be the music director, he will not be the artistic director, he'll be the music director at the Met. But the reason he feels he can do both the jobs is because there's such a strong general manager in place. Mm. So he, could, he, he is essentially leaving the Met in strong, stable hands Yes. When, when he isn't there. That's right. What is the Met like as as an organization, as a company? Is it... Is it an organized, happy, harmonious place? Uh, I mean, how does that balance with the title of your book, The the Mayhem Behind the Scenes? I mean, uh, give us some sense of how much of it is harmony and how much of it is mayhem. Well, I remember when my editor first read the first draft of my book, she said, I don't understand how these people ever get an opera on stage. (laughs) (laughs) 
But the fact is, for an opera house, the Met is extremely well run, extremely well organized. I mean, the rehearsals run like clockwork. Um, it's very organized. It, it varied. Even during the period I was there, it went through times when it was like a family struggling to survive to an organization that seemed more maybe like IBM than an opera house. Mm. Um, you know, since I don't work there now, but I have a lot of friends who do, they say to me it's very different from the way it was when I was there. It's much more impersonal. But it's never going to change backstage. The orchestra is still going to be the orchestra. The chorus is going to be the chorus, and the singers are going to behave like singers. <laughs> <laughs> and it's still those two little vocal chords that right. matter so much. Well, Joanna Fiedler, it sounds like an absolutely fascinating book. I cannot wait to get my hands on a copy to, uh, to, uh, to take it all in. And in the meantime, uh, as people wait for it to arrive in bookstores, they can read this very uh, intriguing, enticing excerpt from it in the current issue of Vanity Fair magazine. Uh, the, the excerpt really focuses primarily upon this very intriguing figure of, of James Levine. And uh, maybe sometime down the road, uh, you and I will have the opportunity to uh, speak about the legacy of your father, Arthur Fiedler, who presided over the Boston Pops for so many years. I'd be very proud to do that. Oh, well, I would love to do that. We'll pursue that another time. And okay. In the meantime, you've been generous with your time today, and we thank you for joining thank us. Thank you so much for having me. Joanna Fiedler's Molto Agitato was originally published in hardcover by Nan A. Talese, the paperback edition published by Anchor.